one of my core missions uh, when I wake up every day is to try to promote vintage watches, to educate, to uh, help people get excited about vintage watches, learn about vintage watches. And, you know, if you can get vintage watches in front of people who are spending serious money on fashion, then you're doing something positive for vintage watches. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. I'm your host, Cameron Steiner, and I'm joined by my co-host and brother, Ryan. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. That's right. And as always, please subscribe and leave a review for us. It truly helps. We hope you enjoy the pod. Let's go. If you're into watches, you 100% know the name Eric Wind. And for those that don't, well, you're welcome. Eric's the founder of Wind Vintage, which he launched in 2017 after a career at Christie's Auction House and has since become a merited authority in the watch world, which can easily be proven by just about every publication quoting him in their articles. He sourced watches for the movie Crazy Rich Asians, the talented gals Ali and AJ, amongst many other star-studded collectors. But don't let that scare you away because Eric actually sources watches of all kinds at all price points for anybody. Not only does he always keep a great stock on his website, but he's also been sourcing vintage watches for Mr. Porter, which has been one of the most sophisticated collabs that I've seen. Eric has a lot of projects in the works, like his help with the Rowing Blazers Seiko watches, which you should probably be seeing another drop very soon here as well as his own podcast, Significant Watches, which he shares with a great team. At the end of the day, Eric's just one of the few people in the watch industry that not a single person has a bad thing to say in his regard. He's honest, friendly, knowledgeable, and someone I am grateful to have become friends with over the years. So please enjoy. This is Eric Wind for Collector's Gene Radio. Eric Wind, how you doing, my friend? Great. How about you, Cameron Ross Steiner? <laughs> I'm doing good. I feel like you can only call me by my full name. <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's one of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know which religion, but uh, you're not the first <laughs> person to tell me that. No, it's good. <laughs> um, let's. I haven't done this actually yet, but let's do a little wrist check. What are you wearing now or what were you wearing today? Because now it's uh, end of the evening. I'm wearing the new... Rowing Blazers X Seiko 5 Sports Watch that's coming out on October 27th. Oh, wow. All right. Day before my birthday. I might have to uh, stay up all night to try and snap yeah. one. I, I know the demand is high on those. It'll be strong. Yeah. It's time to time to step up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's time for me to step up. Very good. Today, I'm rocking actually a, um, a watch I posted a picture of today, which is a Ralph Lauren Slim Classique in white gold uh, with a Piaget movement, a watch I hunted for for a really long time and kind of a crazy story. I was the underbidder at the auction house and then I hounded the auction house to let me know if the buyer backed out and my luck he did. So That's crazy. I'm still waiting for you to sell me a Ralph Lauren Safari one day. (laughs) You know what? I I don't want to do that. Let me just find one for you. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> I, mean, I feel like I, I owe you enough at this point. No, that's good. <laughs> Great. So, Eric, it's been a last, 
long time since we last saw each other. Last time I saw you, you were in Phoenix uh, speaking at an event, and we were it lucky was, enough to get some drinks with each other. It was awesome. I had uh, the pleasure of being picked up at the airport by Cameron Ross Steiner. It's always fun <laughs> to meet people that way for the first time. <laughs> and uh, then we had a good drink with your brother, Jason, uh, and enjoyed seeing your collection, your gold Royal Oak and other hype items. And uh, <laughs> it's been fun to see your collection kind of evolve and change over the years. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, you're, you're a man of taste, uh, especially when it comes to watches. So definitely appreciate it. <laughs> For those of you listening at home, I always say, Cameron Ross Steiner has the fanciest taste. He's <laughs> always wanting to rock like crazy Cartiers and Ralph Lauren watches that are very undervalued, but very cool. And, uh, that were very expensive, you know, a decade ago. (laughs) And, uh, he's always finding kind of hidden gems. Uh, just this week I learned about a new Cartier model from Cameron, the Cartier arcade, which I had, uh, never seen before, never heard the name really. Uh, he loves to dive into the obscure corners of these very elegant watches, ideally with, white lacquer dials and Roman numerals in any sort of variety of shapes. <laughs> Which is the definition of Cartier. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and occasionally um, other other brands too. Yeah, that, that, that arcade's kind of a fun watch because I kind of came about it like I, I had never seen one before and my wife and I did our honeymoon in Paris and I just was admiring the architecture in Paris and you know, when you look up at some of these apartment buildings, the windows are really like the exact same shape as the arcade. Yeah. It's, it's and cool. when I saw the arcade, you know, with a Paris side dial, all I could think of was where the inspiration came from, from Cartier Paris when they were creating this watch. And who knows, you know, the real story. It's, uh, I think it's the runner up to the, the Cartier crash story. But. Yeah, it's the next crash. The yeah. arcade, you heard it here first. Yeah, exactly. Where did you find the watch? Um, I found that watch in Japan, actually. And I've had a hard time finding them. The one that I got actually happens to be the PM. uh, So the smaller size, there is an LM, a larger model, but I don't, that they're even harder to find. So I just opted for the small one. It's the same dimension. for an LM when you find one. (laughs) You don't (laughs) buy it yourself. (laughs) <laughs> hey, I've uh, I've been able to source a couple in my search, so I uh, I definitely can can shoot you an email where uh, where you can find a couple. Just send me a text. Yeah, I sure will. <laughs> <laughs> I always forget I have your number. You do. <laughs> put, me, put me on the uh, on the guest list with Ali and AJ of having Eric Wynn's number. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very, <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely get to that a little later, but yeah, um, there's there's a lot online, obviously, about the trajectory of your career and in getting into watches and stuff. So I don't want to touch on that too much. I think what you're doing now is the most important. But just briefly, you got your MBA at Oxford. You did a little biofuel venture. You were writing at Hodinkee. Um, after that, you joined Christie's, which ultimately led you to starting Wind Vinches. That's right. That's wonderful. That's a very nice, quick synopsis. I like it. I've been reciting that before bed for uh, for a long <laughs> time to make sure I get it right. <laughs> no, it's <was> perfect. <laughs> and and I guess you know a good way to start here is when you were working at Christie's. Was there really a plan to go out on your own and start Win Vintage? 
no plan whatsoever. I was enjoying Christie's, certainly sucked a lot of marrow out of that bone, um, <laughs> and then realized there was not much marrow left in terms of <laughs> the bone. And uh, it was time to, you know, there was such astronomical growth, I would say, in terms of my knowledge, my public presence in the press and with collectors, you know, networking around the world, et cetera. And then if you were looking at it like a, you know, a graph, it was like a big ramp up. And then for the foreseeable future, it was going to be a very minor incline. Like if you're on a treadmill, like a one or two instead of a five or <laughs> some five plus level right. incline <laughs> on a treadmill. So, um, yeah. And the other problem is you just have no time. Not that I have a lot now, but uh, I get to be my own boss there. You are, you know, constantly sourcing watches for auction and then trying to sell them. Um, so you have a great group of clients who want your time or want your help finding things, but you just can't do it. So it was uh, was time to move on. Well, it's uh, seems like it's definitely been a great move for you. I mean, you're in every single ounce of press that comes out. They're always quoting you. Um, it's been really fun and impressive to uh, watch your business kind of grow over the last few years that at least I've been collecting um, yeah, and following you and you know chatting with you. So definitely hats off and claps to you. Thanks so much. It's great to uh, certainly very happy about where I am in the world of watches at this point and just continuing to grow. Sure. And, you know, obviously anyone who knows about watches knows about you, but for any of our listeners or my friends and family who don't know too much about watches and vintage watch dealing, um, you know, you have a website, winvintage.com, where people can go on and see some of the watches that you have for sale. But the truth is, is that a lot of the watches that you sell kind of go behind closed doors. And would you say that's true between, you know, all dealers? Uh, not all dealers, but it comes down to a little bit the personality of some dealers. Some just want to throw it out there and create a feeding frenzy with every watch or try to. Sure. Um, you know, if I have good clients who I know are looking for things, I would rather deal with them directly than throw it out there because I can tell you there are a lot of time wasters. When you put something up, you'll get tons of people who commit and then back out and right. uh, you have no idea who they are. And it's, you know, it's a tough situation on that front. So sure. I prefer to sell it to a known client. The positive is if I already have a relationship them if, with them, I can resell the watch in the future for them or broker it to another client who might be looking for something. And uh, I like and it. It hasn't been thrown out to the public. <laughs> Yeah, even if it has been put out to the public, you know, if a year or two has gone by and someone's looking for something, I can go back to that client and say, hey, you're going to make a significant amount of money. I can make <laughs> I think, are you open to selling it? And they may say, no, I really love it. Or yes, sure. actually, I haven't been wearing it that much the last year or two. Uh, and let's let someone else enjoy it. Right. And then on you know a whole nother door of that i guess if people don't do too much research on you and your past and and 
read all those articles on you. You've been able to source watches for movies like Crazy Rich Asians. You know, you've obviously become very close with the amazing artists, Ali and AJ, um, amongst other big time actors and, and celebrities. And what did whatnot. you think of their uh, talking watches? It was incredible. Um, I always find it, number one, a lot of fun when females do you know, share their passion, especially with watches, just because that's my passion. Yeah. Um, you know, even with my wife, like getting her excited about something that I'm getting for myself or something that she wants, um, to be able to share a passion, whether it's with someone personal or just through a video, like the talking watches episode, uh, it's, it's really cool to see. And there's a lot of female collectors out there that people I think would be really surprised to to know are super into this stuff. So their episode was easily one of my favorites. It definitely helps that you have a uh, little bit of a position in that too. But um, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, all, I think all it's, good stuff. It's incredible because they have such great taste. Um, I think it's one of the setting my own part of that aside and helping them build their collection. It's uh, one of my favorite episodes just because they're genuinely enthusiastic and wanting to learn and it's very good for the hobby that it continued to grow beyond just men sitting in front of their computer screens to right. <laughs> all kinds of different people particularly you know half the earth right. <laughs> so uh I'm and really i think the cool part is is that you know they're playing a show sweating on stage wearing a vintage audemars piguet exactly or rolex or whatever it may be and it's just that's that's the epitome of what collecting vintage watches should be. It shouldn't be um, a nerve-wracking hobby. It should be, you know, you're buying them to enjoy them, in my opinion. Exactly. Obviously, some stuff you don't want to get too crazy with, but I love the fact that they buy stuff that's super honest and they enjoy it. And you can see it in photos of them playing at their shows. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. It's really yeah, They awesome. seem like a nice bunch. How, how did you get involved with, with them? Uh, it's one of those things where you can never anticipate how things go. But uh, when I say it was summer 2018, I get an email from this gentleman out of the blue, like my email inbox every day, but earlier days. So not quite as any many emails as I get now. Right. And he was interested in a Breitling on my site and ended up purchasing it. Not an expensive model, uh, basically a chronomat, and but a very very nice condition one. And then only the best. A few months, yeah, it really was uh, from the '60s. Then a few months go by, and he said, "Hey, my sister-in-law is on this TV show, The Goldbergs," and you know. So at the end of the day, I had no idea who this guy is. He just, I just sold him a watch. He is in California. Then. Few months go by. He said, My sister in law is kind of a notable person and is on this TV show, and she's interested in getting a watch to celebrate her TV show, The Goldbergs. And then I Google it and then realize, Oh, he's married to Allie. I'm helping AJ find a watch. <laughs> and then it goes from there. So I, I think the positive is they've had a positive experience collecting with me and I think if they had a negative experience early on then they probably wouldn't have gotten into watches in the same way but it's a very 
great thing for me to see people get inspired and get very into watches and be nerding out about different models and calibers and those sorts of things. So uh, it all started from, you know, an email basically about a watch I had on my site. Amazing. And I mean, they're not the only celebrities, if you will, that you've had the pleasure of sourcing watches for. Um, and we don't have to go into, you know, names. I'm sure a lot of people like to remain private, but I think it's important to note that these are the people that trust you. And if they're going to trust you, then anybody should trust you because obviously, you know, they have a lot of integrity for the things that they want and for their, you know, personal image and, and all that sort of stuff. And for them to trust a dealer who sells vintage watches, you know, a lot of people who don't know about this stuff can get a little, you know, nervous when it comes to buying stuff like this. So I think it's important to note that you are the most trustworthy, friendly, honest dealer that I know of. So thank you, Cameron. That's very kind. And oh, for uh, sure. that's what I try to strive to do every day. Just help people build really solid collections of solid, honest watches and, uh, hopefully get inspired to keep building their collections. Right. Um, so to kind of touch on that as things are becoming more and more accessible online and the average person who doesn't know anything about watches can go on Google and search for a, you know, a vintage Royal Oak or a vintage Submariner and they may come across your page or they may not. So as a, as a vintage dealer who does have a big online presence, what are you doing besides a lot of these articles and whatnot that you're being quoted in to, I guess, kind of keep your business at the forefront? Um, really, it's not like I'm, I spend zero, you know, marketing dollars. I don't sure. really spend on Google or any of that sort of stuff or Instagram or Facebook. It's really just simple things. Like I, I started during the pandemic posting at least one photo a day on Instagram a day, typically. Um, that's really helped, you know, continue both for my own profile to keep growing and staying relevant, but just remarketing for vintage watches generally to get people excited because I could kind of see that starting around 2018 modern was really beginning to eclipse vintage prior to that vintage was really the hot thing. And then obviously we really saw it take off in 2020 and 2021 modern, you know, skyrocketing while vintage held pretty steady. Um, unfortunately we didn't see quite the same growth in values as like current production Daytonas and Royal Oaks and Nautilus models. Um, but we're obviously seeing what goes up must come down like, uh, Isaac sure are. law of gravity and vintage, you know, has been the steady, uh, girlfriend <laughs> who's uh, <laughs> right there and very reliable and continues to look better with age. It's true. Why, why do you think that is? Because, I mean, obviously the modern market was so absurd and a lot of it still is absurd, but we're lucky to see that coming down. But it's really cool that vintage has stayed where it has been or has gone up in value. I mean, I, I, there's not much that I could say in vintage that I notice have really come down a ton. No, exactly. If anything, the only thing that might have had a correction are kind of subpar examples of watches. You know, 
there's right. a lot more awareness about condition and originality. And maybe neo vintage where there's, you know. Yeah, neo vintage isn't really vintage. It's kind of right. like modern light. So uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, been, it's been hurt. But the reality is, if you show me a 1990s Submariner, I don't feel that passionate about it compared to like a 1960s or 70s Submariner. Sure. Um, it's just a very modern watch with the dial and the white gold surrounds. So, um, yeah, so that, that obviously that neo vintage category has, has come down significantly, just as modern Rolex on the secondary market has come down. You know, the reality is. Vintage buyers are still committed, still liquid. They weren't like using a firm to buy their watches for right, right. over whatever period of time. And uh, vintage collectors are still looking for great pieces to add to their collection, no question. And there's a lot less of them. I mean, Rolex reduces. 1.3 million plus watches per year my guess is it's a lot more than that we don't really know um and all these other brands are producing tens of thousands of watches and i think right. probably more than we would know uh so if you have something on the secondary market that's still being made doesn't really make sense in my view to be paying 6x the retail value when it's still being pumped out literally as fast as the companies can do it right and and to kind of like go off of that you know obviously brands like rolex and patek philippe and audemars piguet they will you know sell watches to people that are on their waiting lists or big clients um but they'll in the same turn also punish clients for selling watches that they get at retail but they haven't really changed the strategy of how to avoid that. And their watches keep popping up on the secondary market, um, yet they still keep doing things the same way that they have been for the last X amount of years instead of selling watches to people who actually want to keep them. Is there even a way to combat that, or are they just figuring that they're just going to continue to do things the same way? And Yeah, it's... Um... Obviously, the scare tactics work to some extent. You know, I have these conversations with people all the time who have purchased special, what I would call hype watches at retail, and they then realize they want to sell them for a variety of reasons. Had a conversation along these lines today. One, you know, I can't really wear the all these watches that I've purchased because I'm going to get my wrist chopped off. Uh, in Paris or London, if I wear this watch, I don't even feel that comfortable in New York City or Los Angeles wearing it. First of all, second, you know, it's not really the type of attention I want to draw professionally. You know, if you're meeting with clients and you're wearing some, you know, hyper expensive watch and you're asking them for money that might not go so well depending on the, right. the field of uh field of work you are in and you know just that it's almost jumped the shark you know some of these models they're too popular so you know they then want to sell but then they're definitely afraid of the company finding out or their retailer getting in trouble and them not being able to get additional watches and what can I do to, you know, 
ensure that it won't get back to the retailer, you know, and uh, sometimes they want the buyer to sign something or all kinds of crazy things, but typically that doesn't work because you're buying something and you can do whatever you want with it at the end of the day. So I just tell the buyers in some cases, hey, I know the buyer for this. They're solid. They're not going to screw you, but you still have to presume that somehow, some way it might get out. Or in some cases, hey, I really don't have a buyer for this. Short of putting it on my website and Chrono 24, I'm not going to post a photo of the serial number and put it online, but it's really the Wild West. I can't control it once it's out of my hands. If you want this amount of money, I don't have someone for it at that level. And it's going to take putting it out there and kind of letting someone come find me who I don't know who they are, who wants this watch. So that's happens all the time. I'm sure. to. Yeah, exactly. You have to value your relationship and future purchases with them versus, you know, wanting to make a significant profit and move on now. Right. Um, getting, getting back to kind of some of your clients and uh, repeat clients, if you will, and they're kind of collecting habits. You know, I find that, you know, maybe a few years ago, it was almost more important to have some sort of collecting philosophy, whether that's the amount of pieces that you have or the quality or the style of pieces that you can have. But what I've come to learn, at least with myself, is that my tastes are constantly changing. Things that I think I want that, you know, I buy and then I, you know, get it in the mail and I'm like, eh, it's maybe not as cool as I thought it was or whatnot. But do you think it's important for people to be more open-minded with that stuff or have some sort of collecting philosophy based on X amount of research? No, I think uh, any collector is going to evolve. You know, most people start with interest more in the sportier watches, Rolex sports models and Royal Oaks, Nautilus pieces, etc. And then a common theme I see is starting with those and moving toward more simple, uh, time-only. Everyone loves a great vintage Patek Philippe, Calatrava, etc. So, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to have a mix. You might not sell your vintage subs and GMTs, certain Daytonas. You might pare it down to a few you really like and want a great Speedmaster and some other things. And then maybe get into the some of the independence and vintage time only models uh you know i think watching your own kind of collection develop it's been i think positive for you to own a lot of different watches that helps you hone in what you like and a lot of collectors benefit from that they more kind of watches that you're interested in that you can own and wear and enjoy the better you can kind of define what you really like to wear. Uh, So that was actually good advice I got from the chief operating officer of Hodinkee, Henry Acosta, back in the day. He had had defined it as any new collector should want to own as many different watches as they can over time because it'll help you you know, likewise, you don't have to necessarily go that route. You can go to auction previews and 
visit Win Vintage and and the like, and just trying on these watches is very important because for so many people, it really is like a two-dimensional hobby. They're just looking on Instagram and forums. And that only gives you part of the picture because watches can wear very differently and be very different in person uh, than than just in the photos. Yeah, and I guess that that kind of leads me into the question for you as a dealer um, and a collector of watches. Do you have that battle between keeping watches for your personal collection and then putting them up for sale? Or is it kind of nice for you to you know, get an influx of stock that you can wear for a little bit and see if it's something that you really want, maybe for your personal collection? And if not, then you at least got to see it in person, sell it and make some money. Yeah, every day it's a battle because I fall in love with, you know, pretty much every single day I'm getting new watches and there's something to fall in love with multiple times a week uh, where I'm like, oh man, I love this. I didn't expect <laughs> to love it. Uh, and then what's a, uh, what's a modern watch that you fallen in love with recently and a, and a vintage watch that you could think of? Yeah. So, um, the 30, I have a 3970 EP on my site right now that uh, isn't platinum. It's incredible. It's really gorgeous. And I, I'm not really keeping 100K plus watches myself right now because that's a lot of money to take out of inventory. And I turn my capital pretty quickly. So, um, you know, if I'm keeping something like that, it, it means that I have less to buy other watches and turn them. Uh, so that I really like if I was keeping, you know, watches at the 150 plus level, I would definitely be thinking about that versus like a, you know, a common Nautilus or Aquanaut or something where it's, yeah. you know, not, not as interesting. From That a, watch checks so many boxes. It's gorgeous, yeah, and I and I like thirty nine forties a lot as well. Also um, amazing, yeah, just just beautiful pieces. Um, so those those have both those have really grown on me. I would say over the years, you know, I I have dabbled with vintage Cartier as well. I'd love to get a jumbo tank in white gold. That's uh, something I've been looking for for a long time in unpolished condition. Uh, that would be something I would keep. But um, I really haven't seen any good ones in many, many years. So keep your eyes open, Cameron, for me. Um, <laughs> I sure will. Anything Cartier and white gold is, is definitely special, especially yeah. when it's vintage. Yes, yeah. You're more disciplined than me because, you know, I, I don't mind as much if something's a little bit polished. I care more about dial, and I know you care a ton about case and the integrity and, of that. Uh, and yeah, I care about both. It's For sure, like for sure. The Frank, the Frank Sinatra song, Love and Marriage, you can't have one without the other. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm always looking for something very special condition-wise. But um, Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's every, every week I'm falling in love with something primarily vintage watches and then wanting to keep it. Yep. Absolutely. How do you feel about, because obviously you're big on into, you know, originality and obviously that's important and 
and whatnot, but we're seeing, or at least I've been seeing, um, a lot more acceptance in the realm of refinished hands and loom plots and, and certain restoration. And I understand that in most cases it's not acceptable, but in the cases where it is acceptable, right? If the loom is falling out of the hands and it can be color matched or anything like that. I mean, do you find that to be acceptable in cer- certain circumstances? Yeah, I'm not a huge stickler about loom in the hands. You know, certain models, it basically doesn't exist where it's remained in the hands. You know, I think of the Submariner reference 6200, the original Big Crown. I can't personally think of an example where the loom hasn't fallen out of the hands and then been repaired. I haven't seen one. So um, does that mean you don't want to own any of those? Obviously not. It's one of the most spectacular vintage Submariners. Uh, so, you know, it's the equivalent of, of uh, as I say, like, you know, a supermodel missing a tooth. It's not very attractive. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, the, you know, for most vintage watches the particularly with rolex or omega or things like that the the loom in the hands is not supported you know it's not like it's sitting in a spoon it's just completely exposed and gravity will make it kind of sag and fall out like a trampoline so in that case i mean you know when that happens do you do you think it's better to leave the hands without loom for example, or send them to someone who's reputable, who knows what they're doing and can, you know, reloom them. I think it's preferred to reloom the hands in a very, you know, sympathetic way so they can match obviously the dial and texture and color and uh, just disclose that that's been done. And um, right. As long as the price reflects it, then. Yeah, and I I honestly don't think there should be a big discount for that. It should be really more about the rest of the condition of the watch, the dial, the hands, etc. The positive with dials is loom typically, you know, does not fall off because it's supported on the back by the dial. Um, right. We typically just see these issues with the hands. Um and you know, I think there's a whole growing movement that I'm part of that prefers original cases, you know, that are ideally unpolished and, uh, which is a controversial word now, but, uh, um, sure I, uh, I prefer cases with the original architecture and lines. And, uh, I think that, you know, for me makes a big difference in enjoying the watch. Yeah. And I mean, it, another thing that people have been doing, um, that I just kind of learned about is, and maybe the, I'm using the wrong word, but stabilizing the hands yeah. where they're stabilized on the back. I'm sure that's an old technique, but is that something that's, you know, not seen as controversial? Yeah, that's not really controversial. The big thing is making sure it's done with um, kind of glue that does not change the color of the hands. Because if you, you know, again, it's almost like, semi-translucent if you put certain types of glue on the back it'll change the loom color which is not something anyone wants uh and i've seen that that happen so uh yeah i think there i have no issue with stabilizing it otherwise because you see kind of these micro fissure fissures developing in 
you know, vintage sport Rolex watches, and then you want to have someone glue that so it it doesn't break apart more and then suddenly fall out. Right. And I mean, for everyone out there who's wondering, you know, who's trustworthy enough to go ahead and do this stuff, I mean, is there anyone that you can recommend to watch collectors and buyers that maybe want something relumed or hand stabilized that they could be, you know, they could rest easy at night knowing that they're, they're in good hands. No pun intended. Yeah. Um, I'm not too thrilled with a lot of the people that do the loom work, to be honest, because they don't, it becomes very clear, particularly when you look with the UV light that it's not matching. And then, you can see that almost in the color or texture, but someone who does a good job with stabilizing the hands, he may be unhappy. I call him out uh, because he doesn't want more of this type of work. But uh, Dr. Greg Petronzi, who's true patina, does a good job stabilizing hands. Uh, but he typically, you know, he had such demand for that. He doesn't just do it solo now. He requires it done as part of a service so um there's other people as well but you want to make sure they have the right glue otherwise the the hands will literally look different yeah definitely have to be be careful with that stuff yeah you don't want to be the first time someone's does that you you want to be someone who you want to use someone who's done it many times and we haven't seen the the hand loom change color over time right and I guess either way, we'll always have the internet trolls who like to give their unsolicited opinions on all yeah. this stuff. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely disclose at your own risk as, risk as a as a collector. Yes. So, kind of next up in in what you've been working on is uh, you have your own podcast with a nice group of uh, of of gents over there called the Significant Watches Podcast. When did you guys launch that? Uh, last fall. Do you listen to it? Oh, absolutely. Good, good. Every yeah, single episode. Good. It's been fun. Um, I I co-hosted with Tony Trena, formerly of Rescapement and now of Hodinkee. Uh, my colleague. Tony's a good Charlie. guy. Yes. Uh, very excited to see him with the dink. Very important voice there. Then Charlie Dunn, who, when we started it, was just a friend and now is uh, working with me at Win Vintage. Uh, and then Gabriel Benador, uh, who lives in Connecticut and is a collector. I put it together as a concept and we kind of talked about it. And I like the different hats we each wear, you know, journalist, collector, watch dealer, uh, you know, someone who kind of works in the dealer world, but is a collector more so uh what so, was the nickname they gave charlie <laughs> would you tell me i forget he's had a few. i forget i forget what it was the i was listening to the episode the other week and i forget the uh the name they gave him but he was he was pretty smitten about it <laughs> yeah exactly exactly expert uh yeah, expert yeah yeah he liked that as he should uh so yeah it's been been a lot of fun we we get a lot of listeners you know i think clearly there's a lot of people who are interested in vintage watches and the market and we're hitting an unmet need because there's not like a publication that talks about all these things. You know, most of the watch publications are covering new watches and 
very surface level articles about what might be coming up at auction rather than more in-depth conversations. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the best part uh, for me, at least about your guys' podcast, um, which I'll definitely be linking up here, uh, to make it easier for everyone to find if, if they haven't found it yet. But, um, for me, it's, it's, you guys talk about such a wide spectrum, especially of vintage stuff that one, like you said, nobody's talking about, but two, there is like never a mention of all the hype nonsense and all that stuff, which is almost inevitable to come up in every other podcast um, yeah. about watches. And uh, you guys really stick to that, which, which for me as a vintage watch collector and enthusiast, it's exactly what I think was missing um, in, in a watch, you know, category podcast. So hats off to you guys. It's, it's been really enjoyable, uh, especially for me so far. No, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been fun. And you also have your rowing blazers and, and Seiko collab that, that you assist with. And you should definitely touch on that because I don't think a lot of people know how you kind of are involved in that. And, um, they're super fun and cool and, and definitely something that people should keep their eye on. Yeah. So, um, it's been fun, you know, to kind of build the business and be able to dabble in different things. Uh, my best man from my wedding, his name is Jack Carlson. We lived on the same floor freshman year at Georgetown. Uh, and it's been fun to see many beers ago. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, not too many beers, a lot of Domino's pizza ago. Um, but uh, we, it's been fun to see, you know, both of our professional crap paths uh, develop in different ways. Jack and I both ended up going to Oxford for graduate school. He was there longer. He did a doctor of philosophy and archaeology degree and I did a master of business administration degree which was just one year his his program was longer but um we we've obviously stayed uh in close touch over the years uh and he did a book called rowing blazers inspired by his rowing career and seeing all the different blazers that clubs and schools would bring to the Henley Royal Regatta uh, every year. So, you know, some of the traditions around the blazers from the different schools and interesting colors. It's kind of a book. He did the book. We actually launched it at Ralph Lauren in New York. He launched it, I should say, I attended and we did a watch spotting article on Hodinkee about the launch of the book, which I think was circa 2013 or 14. Then he decided to start a fashion company basically a clothing company inspired by that book kind of took off didn't it it's taken off it's been phenomenal to watch uh i've got a small piece of equity in it which i'm happy about and i'm on the board of advisors and uh it's you know early on i had a connection with seiko back in 2017 and we had a meeting and basically seiko said it's very cool what you're doing but you know, you're still very uh, early stage, so we don't really want to do anything yet. Then fast forward a few years, they said, we've been watching you. We'd love to do something with our new Seiko 5 Sports line. And then we did the first group of three watches 
that came out last June uh, 2021 were wildly successful. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. That was sort of my first involvement in the new watch world in terms of designing and overseeing the launch of a watch and being involved. And now we've got another round uh, coming out on the 27th of October. Then, you know, thankfully we have other launches coming up with different companies that we've been working on over the last year plus and uh, a lot of cool stuff in the works. Are those watches launching on your site or the Rolling Blazer site? Uh, these are on Rowing Blazers. There'll be some on Hodinkee, some on Seiko. Um, and then, yeah, continuing with uh, other other companies in the future. Awesome. And Rowing Blazers also just opened up a store um, in Manhattan. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, they have a, They had a store previously. Obviously, the pandemic was not great for retail in New York, so they decided to close their last store. Um, because they could only have one customer in at a time and that sort of thing. You know, part of having a store is they enjoy having events uh, to celebrate different collaborations and launches. So, you know, it didn't make sense until the world began to open up again and they got a great new flagship store on Rivington Street. We're actually having an event in honor of the Seiko as well. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it, they've been having a lot of events for different things. They just did a, you know, a Sonic the Hedgehog collaboration. <laughs> so that. that was cool. And, uh, you know, the events are pretty exciting and fun things to attend. That's great. Well, it's uh, everyone get their, uh, get their laptops open on on the 27th so they can get some watches. Exactly. <laughs> I missed the last drop, so I'm definitely going to keep my eyes on this one. You'll like this watch. It's a little bit smaller than the last watch. so uh, Say no more. I think you'll like it. <laughs> um, you're also sourcing or help sourcing watches for Mr. Porter. Is that correct? Yes, that's been fun. That came together this year. Certainly, it's been a long-time fan of uh, Mr. Porter. I've bought, you know, some nice clothes from them over the years that I like. Uh, and, you know, they have one of the best curated selections of, of high-end clothing in the, in the world. And also I really enjoy their editorial. I find myself uh, looking at the journal weekly to see what articles they're writing, but um, they really do every piece of their business extremely well. They do. Yeah. And I've really admired that. Uh, so I was, you know, absolutely honored when they asked if I would be interested in, uh, selling vintage watches through their site. Uh, and it's, I just sent them a, another batch a, a few weeks ago of watches. So um, that should hopefully get up there before the holidays. Um, so that's nice. You know, it's not like that is, you know, keeping the lights on here necessarily. Like, sure. It's, but it's a really, really great brand building for me. Certainly, I hope that their customers become familiar with Win Vintage. They have serious customers who spend, you know, six figures a year in clothing. A month. <laughs> yeah, maybe a month, but certainly many that spend over six figures a year with them. Uh, you know, not something. No, I think it's great exposure, honestly, for both 
both parties. I think um, there's a lot of people that still aren't familiar with Mr. Porter and um, I think, you know, vice versa. There's a lot of people that may not be familiar with, uh, with when vintage, but it sounds like a kind of a match made in heaven yeah. collaboration. It's been fun. And really like I, I would say one of my core missions uh, when I wake up every day is to try to promote vintage watches. You know, I don't know that too many people in the space have that as a mission, but that's what I try to do always to educate, to uh, help people get excited about vintage watches, learn about vintage watches. Uh, and that's both because it's my passion and also because I want to have vintage watches remain relevant and important 20 years from now, 50 years from now, and 100 years from now. Um, so if I don't take that on, you know, who will? And, uh, you know, if you can get vintage watches in front of people who are spending serious money on fashion, then you're, you're doing something positive for vintage watches. For sure. And, and again, you know, when it comes to their website, they, they really do everything in such a tasteful way that you providing them with watches, it's, it, you probably have a peace of mind knowing that they're going to do their part in, you know, making a listing for that watch specifically that, and the photography and all that, that uh, really highlights everything about it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's been fun to see them pair the watches with different clothing that they have available for sale. And, you know, I haven't really participated in that. They come up with that on their own, but I love the style shots and, you know, ultimately it's vintage watches are part of a lifestyle choice and, it's good for people to think that they're cool and not just want to buy the brand new watches that they, you know, can see at a retailer. Right. Exactly. Um, we'll be sure to also link, uh, the page for that because it might not be as easy for people to find. So I'll make sure to, uh, to get that in there for you. That's great. Thank you. Um, before we get to the collector's gene rundown, just as a fun little, highlight or note what's one vintage watch that you are maybe close to adding to your collection right now that's tough um one watch that i really do love prices have come down a bit so if the right one came came along i would buy it um but it's so hard to find the right one is uh the nautilus reference 3700 in steel um blue dial obviously I've had one before. Um, it's now in the collection of Daniel Day Kim. I've obviously bought and sold a number of them. Um, Daniel talked me out of it in a moment of weakness. Uh, it was <laughs> un unpolished, perfect dial. We actually were able to get a new gasket in the crown, so it's water-resistant. Uh, Alcus Katsopoulos did that in New York. Um, so that that's kind of nice. Water-resistant vintage Nautilus from 1980. But, I would um, still be nervous to, to wear it in the water. Yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't recommend it in the water, but it's just nice, particularly in the Florida humidity. Uh, for sure. So that's just an all-timer for me. I love that watch. You and know? You, would, you wouldn't – settle's not the right word because it's still an amazing watch, but you wouldn't go for something like a 3800? For me, that's just a little bit small. Um, it's I, I prefer the jumbo size. Um, so – I guess uh, that's that's one I really love. Um, other I'm than sure that, one will cross your path. 
Yeah, I've been looking for years. Um, to find one in the right condition is extremely hard. Um, for sure. And at the right price too. Yeah, exactly. But I, I, you know, I just, I, I've only seen like two or three unpolished ones in my life in steel. They're almost always polished. And, you know, the, the finishing, how the light, the edges of the case, how it looks under the light, the brushing is very different when it's polished. Uh, and, uh, they kind of glow that original brushing under the light. When you turn it, you can see it just is magnificent how the light moves along the crane. And when it's just brushed, it doesn't light up at all under the light. So it's very different. Amazing watch. Um, I hope you find one soon. And, uh, I hope that I get to see it in person. And when you yeah, do, yeah, I'll bring it out to Arizona for sure. Great. All right, Eric, let's finish up with the collector's dream rundown. How about for you first? Oh, for me. Yeah. Um, Oh man. Um, I really love the reference five zero six, six a Aquanaut in 36 millimeters. I love that size. You could still find them at good prices and you can actually call the Henry Stern watch agency and ask them for a couple different color straps and they will sell them to you. And it's kind of a fun watch to like toss on a chocolate strap or a Navy strap. Um, but I love that you still get a lot of them have, you know, kind of that pumpkin color patina and um, the 36 millimeter case is kind of a no brainer for me and, and my collection. Yeah. I also really love a 3940. Um, they're just so out of reach um, price wise for me. It's just, I would love to own one, but um, I'd have to sell a lot of my collection to own that, you know. Any particular metal you would want? Preferably rose or white gold. Preferably, you know, white gold over rose, but I do love rose gold too. I would never complain about amazing watches. Toss them on any color strap. They look good. I guess yellow gold too, for that matter. You know, I mean, yeah, I would never complain about owning any, any in any metal uh, of that watch, but um I, I also love the the Nautilus, the 3800. Um, I had the chance to try on a two-tone one yesterday, and I wasn't sure that I would even like two-tone, but I thought the two-tone was actually kind of cool. And you also have a great one on your website, I think, yeah. with a with the champagne dial. That's pretty amazing. Was the one you tried on a blue dial? Um, the one I tried on actually had a, a rare white Roman numeral dial with loom plots. It was super interesting. I'll just text you a photo of it after this. I'd never really seen this dial configuration. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'd love to see it. Box papers, everything. Really, really, really neat watch. Um, I, I really enjoyed that. I would love a Cartier Centre. You know, there's there's always Cartiers that are on my list and and whatnot. But which, I think uh, um, which Centre? Honestly, I would it's one of those Centres that I would or that model that I would take any of. You know, I would go vintage. I would prefer not to go modern. I just don't love the colorways as much of the modern ones. So vintage, small model, large model, doesn't matter to me as long as, you know, the dial's in good condition. I care about that the most. I absolutely love that watch. It kind of just hugs your wrist no matter what your wrist size is. Mm -hmm. The list goes on. That's awesome. Never ends. (laughs) That's the beauty of the hobby. I know one day you'll be rocking a crash. I can't wait for that day. A crash or a cloche? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, a cloche I would absolutely love. Um, 
a crash too. I think I would sell almost every Cartier I own except for one uh, to own a crash. But you need, yeah, you need one one day. That's just I think I need Cameron's, one. Cameron Ross Steiner watch. I, I think that watch would be a great summary of everything I love about Cartier. You know? Yes. Yeah. Um, and a cloche too. I think a cloche kind of foots the bill on uh, on everything I love about Cartier too, but prices have just gotten outrageous. And I don't know if I would rather, you know, a Nautilus or a cloche or something like that, but who knows? Yeah, that's good. All righty, let's hit it because uh, I know it's getting late over there in, in Florida, so I don't want you to uh, lose any more sleep than you already have talking to me tonight. So. No. <laughs> Um, what's the one that got away? It's hard to say one. I mean, certain watches, I mean, here's one. There's a Patek Philippe reference 1518 that was from 1969, you know, which was basically almost 15 years after the last uh, 1518s we really saw. That was a kind of one-off watch. We had at Christie's with the original extract from the archives, just an insane thing that it even existed in insane condition. Um, and the, the owner ended up taking it back. This was a story. I think the watch walked into Turno and <laughs> the guy wanted $15,000 for it. Unbelievable. The, the, um, the, thankfully, the person who worked there said, I think this watch is worth a lot more than that. You should go go to Christie's and have it looked at. Wow. Um, but you don't hear about that too often. No. And uh, then the owner decided to take it back and I think sold it elsewhere, unfortunately. And I don't know where it is now, but one of the best 1518s in the world. Most 1518s are pretty heavily restored. The dials have been, you know, sanded numerous times sometimes re-enameled uh with soft enamel on top of the hard enamel etc uh so to find you know one in such amazing original condition is insane um it's uh you know it wasn't like it was pink on pink but just a great yellow is you know impossible to find i mean just that watch in general you know it's to and to see one like the one that you're describing was probably yeah. really special just in yes. general. So yes. Yeah. It's special. Um, the pink on pink that sold for 9.5 million. I was certainly happy to be able to see that just spectacular condition, uh, as well. And I think one of the most beautiful examples of one of the most important Patek Philippe references. And just the perfect shades of pink on pink too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so beautiful. Uh, yeah, it, it would make me into a, I, I'm not a big gold guy myself. Uh, my humble, uh, Wisconsin roots versus your vibrant, uh, Phoenix and Arizona upbringing. <laughs> but, um, I, I, uh, would certainly go <laughs> all gold all the time, uh, to, to have worn that watch. hundred percent. What's the unobtainable one that you can't have maybe it's in a museum or a private collection or too expensive 24.99 in platinum uh there's only two they were both made in circa 1988 for this uh patek philippe auction 
the one obviously sold in 2012 for about just under four million at Christie's, um, worth a ton more now. The other is remains in the Patek Philippe collection, but uh, that you know, I don't know, that watch could be 15 to 20 million now. Um, and it's just a special, special thing. Very special watch in any metal, but especially in, in that configuration for sure. Yes. Also the 1518 in steel, uh, would be one of those five known. Um, that's like a wonder of the world. (laughs) Yeah. One of those would be uh, spectacular. Yeah, it sure would. How about the uh, the page one rewrite? So if you could collect anything besides watches, what would it be and why? I'm pretty happy with watches. Um, but let's say money wasn't an object and you could collect anything besides watches. I don't, I don't, I mean, cars are always tempting. Obviously, a lot of people are in both cars and watches, but um I don't know. Cars can be a pain in the butt from what I understand, obviously a little full-time job and more so than watches. I don't, I'm interested in art of course, but I don't feel the same way about art that I do with watches. So, um, I don't just more watches. Yeah. And I think (laughs) that your point with the collector gene as a concept is like, I didn't just come up to watches from, out of nowhere, I started collecting sports cards when I was young, baseball, football, basketball, um, even golf, <laughs> etc. And uh, and then I collected coins with my dad. He helped inspire that, and we would go to coin shows uh, and, and sports card shows. And then I had inherited a collection of stamps. Uh, from my grandparents, kind of international stamps that relatives had collected over the years. So, um, you know, it all started from those things. I don't feel as passionate about those hobbies, I think partially because they are more inanimate, if you will. They're they're just, you know, flat. In the case of sports cards, these flat objects, they're awesome to look at and enjoy. But for me, watches have so much more life uh you can wear them enjoy them the history involved the mechanics etc and you know seeing the watch operate is more gratifying than looking at a beautiful sports card from my perspective uh in great condition but certainly that condition training helped train me in the field of watches really want original untouched things you know, that's kind of the best thing about watches is that there's very few things that I could think of, if any at all, that you can collect and enjoy in all aspects of everything that you do in your everyday life, right? Yeah. Yeah. With art, you can collect it and appreciate it. And art is spectacular, especially when you have, you know, some one of one things and sculptures and all that sort of stuff. But all you can do with that is look at it and put it in a room. And go and admire it from time to time. But you can't bring it with you in the car. You can't bring it with you on a vacation. You can't bring it with you in the pool. Yeah. So there's very few things besides watches that I could think of um, that could bring me the same, me at least, and I would assume you too, uh, the same amount of joy. Yes. It's something that's very personal because it's on your person and the memories you make and 
it's just a very different level, I would say, of engagement with an object. Funnily enough, this is something I don't think I've talked about before, but uh, at Christie's, there is a term for if you're a VVIP and you're interested in a piece of significant art, you can actually request Christie's to bring it, bring it to your apartment and uh, set it up. Obviously, they don't do that for just anyone, but there are two terms which I was joking around with Charlie Dunn about for those visits of the artwork. Uh, one is if it's during the day, it's called a play date. <laughs> you can you can have you know if in the case of a painting you can literally have it hung on your wall, enjoy right. it for an hour or two, see what you think about it in the room, etc. But if you're really really a big cheese then you can have a sleepover <laughs> and they leave it at your home for the night. <laughs> you literally get to keep it at your house for the night. So, uh, you know, we joke, we had one client who wanted, uh, to take a pocket watch for, uh, sleepover. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was kind of unprecedented in the watch department because, you know, people just come in and preview it. Uh, and can spend however much time they want with it, but at Christie's in the preview room or in the office <laughs> and look at the watch however many thousand times they want through a loop and, and everything else. Uh, but um, yeah, it was pretty funny. so and funny. Funnily enough, after all that effort, the person decided they didn't want to bid on it. Uh, Unbelievable. And, uh, the watch but see, that's the thing that I don't get with with something like art collecting is because if you have an eye for something like art, right, you should know very well whether or not it's going to work in your home. <laughs> you would think, but I would guess if you're looking at spending tens of millions of dollars, you better be, you better be certain you like how it looks in the room and, and I guess uh, you're entitled to a sleepover matches your furniture and everything else, but it's uh, in rug color. But um, yeah, it's pretty funny. It's really, really, really funny. That is hilarious. <laughs> so uh, next up then, who's who's the goat and or goats for you in the collecting world? Uh, Cameron Ross Steiner, Jason <laughs> Steiner. No, I mean, um, there are certainly a number of collectors I look up to. It doesn't have to be about total total number of watches or, you know, there's all different types of, of approaches for some collectors just have tons of watches. Greg Selch is a good example of that. He's got, you know, many, many hundreds of watches. Uh, Amazing. I did an amount of watches. <laughs> it's insane. And he'll just take out tray after tray of, <laughs> of watches uh, and it gets crazy. You can see, you know, a small selection of that on talking watches. Um, and he likes hammered watches. Uh, watches that are super beat up uh, and you know that's that's not the norm in the world of collecting obviously but it's great there are people like him who like that and I think they look super cool um, you know his Kyrelli Zenith that looks like it's you know survived multiple 
grenade attacks, etc. Um, so that watch looks like it's been shot five times and somehow yeah. still working. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it's super cool to see something like that. Bill Sohn is another guy who's got uh, apparently literally suitcases full of watches just banging against each other, metal on metal, you know, driving, driving. <laughs> Uh, so literally unzip the suitcase and see, you know, <laughs> hundreds of watches piled on top of each other, like a, you know, a dragon. Bill's a good guy, but I didn't know that about him. I'm gonna have to. Uh, I'm gonna have to ask I don't him know to fix if that. I haven't seen it with my own eyes, but I've heard it. It's kind of makes me think of a scene of like a dragon with, you know, all the gold uh, <laughs> piles of gold coins and bullion and through it. <laughs> just like, and then people jumping through the, the coins and stuff. Uh, that's him with like Omega sea masters and constellations and stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, there are other collectors that have very uh, refined tight uh, collections of a small number of exceptional pieces I'm thinking of a few guys offhand, um, a gentleman named Leon who has some amazing Rolex watches. He's not on Instagram. Um, and, you know, Jeff Hess uh, is a great collector. He recently left Phillips and is on garden leave until he goes to Sotheby's next year after his uh, non-compete runs out. He's got a great collection of Rolex pieces and a few other brands um and it's not he's not a volume player he's just like really wants exceptional special pieces uh and he has them for sure yeah um my friend jafari one uh jeff binstock has some amazing pieces i like gary steingart's collection i've sold him a few pieces but he actually just loves his watches you'll see them in his almost daily picks eating somewhere uh, drinking a martini having a nice beverage and enjoying some crazy food um he just really has a great eye he's got obviously beautiful guilt explorer um and beautiful patek philippe 3445 and other really nice pieces and he likes some modern stuff too which is really cool he does yeah he's a you know he's he has a mix. He recently was looking at a 3940P from me. He was also interested in the G. Um, but just after uh, having a sleepover with one of my watches, if you will, for a few days, um, decided it was just kind of too hard to read. His eyesight was is uh, deteriorating gradually, and he didn't like the layout it's not like it's very quick to read a 3940 because you've got all the information and you have to look at the where the hands are pointing versus like a 3970 where it tells you the day of the week and the month you know only and you just have to look at the date and moon phase the date register and moon phase basically um so he liked it as a concept but then ultimately given up on his 3940 dreams but that's that's good there's value and clarity because he's talked about owning a 3940 for several years and just wasn't sure if he could read the information on the dial that easily and now he has the clarity that he can't so um you know that's the funny thing about collecting when it comes to watches is that 
there's no better feeling than looking for something, obviously, and when it works out and you get the thing you love and it's just as good in your head as it is in person and, 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 and owning it. But there's also that side of it when you've been dreaming about something for so long and it's expensive and you don't know if it's going to work out or not. And then you see it in person, you're like, oh, I don't really want this anymore. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you get to write it off your list. Yes. Yeah, it is funny. Um, that's definitely part of it. I can think about that with different watches uh, in my life. So, yeah, it's um, that's the fun thing. Yep. The chase or the sale? Do you do you enjoy the hunt more or the ownership? Thankfully, as a dealer, I can enjoy both. Um, there are certain things I just can't. I feel like I can't sell. They're not super expensive, but just stuff I really love, like certain like those Dunhills, Dunhills, some Vulcan crickets, you know, some Rolex models, etc. But um, but most things that you know you make your peace with and you just try to find it a good home and hopefully you can have visitation privileges in the future (laughs) (laughs) sleepovers yes yeah exactly (laughs) or you can go visit and uh, see the watch for a play date (laughs) (laughs) too good yeah uh most important do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene uh yes i think so some people gravitate toward being collectors and i would say that's been been the case for me yep how about i would i think for you too i would imagine 100 percent. and and just like you i grew up collecting all sorts of stuff from baseball cards to action figures to hot wheels cars to honestly anything i could get my hands on that i could make a collection out of i went ahead and i did that but none of those things have obviously stayed like watches have and definitely will, you know? Yes. Yeah, exactly. But uh, definitely a different, uh, different category of collecting for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right, Eric, always such a pleasure to talk with you. Um, We definitely don't do it often enough, but I know you're a busy guy, so I try not to bug you too much, but always so much fun chatting with you and, and talking about this stuff. Thank you, Cameron. Come down to Palm beach sometime and visit. I think I actually may be there in January, so I'll keep you posted on that. Good, good. And uh, you should come to the Miami Beach Antique Show as well sometime, which is also in January. Uh, I think it's a lot of fun. Perfect. I might be able to kind of kill two birds with one stone there. That'd be great. (laughs) Thank you so much, Cameron. Thank you, Eric. Take care. All right, that does it for this episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Collector's Gene Radio, signing off.